0: I hope you guys had a nice week. This is catching you at a good time in the middle of the week. We're um, wrapping up an eight-week series on the unseen realm here. So tonight, this is, I think, in your program, your bulletin. Um, We will pick back up in the fall. So we'll be off for the summer and pick back up September 7. Um, So we'll have a little bit of... uh, downtime here, Um, next week we'd invite you to be a part of the um, Good Friday service, Friday 6.30 p.m. in our main auditorium, and then of course our Easter service as well, so hopefully you guys will be there, and and, and I would encourage you to invite someone, especially for the Easter services, maybe if someone isn't a believer, oftentimes that's one of the few times a year they'll go, "Eh, eh, sure, (laughs) I might give it a try. So tonight, as I mentioned, we're gonna to draw to a conclusion, <clears throat> um, much of what we've been exploring for the past seven weeks and really grateful for all of the research that we have been able to leverage in the writing from Dr. Michael Heiser and a number of his different books. And I've talked to many of you who have um, picked up some of his books and, and, and been stretched more because there's so much more content than what we're um, covering here on these Wednesday nights. Um, Real quickly, I want to do an overview of these three great rebellions, because where we're going to go tonight, and you can see the title is Your Eternal Status and Destiny. Um, oftentimes, there's, there's maybe just a lack of clarity in our minds as to, and I don't know how much you wonder, but it's like, what will eternity be like, <laughs> right? We're not going to answer all the questions, or what is it like for someone who maybe I've lost? Like, what are, what's, going, what's planned for them? What's planned for me as a believer, as a follower of Christ? What's going to be, like I said, we're going to kind of break it down into two categories. What's our status? Like, where, where are we at on things? Because I know my status now. You know, the book of Psalms, we've talked about this. It says humanity's been created a little bit lower than the angels. Okay, I know my status. Is that the way it's going to stay forever? And then also, not just what is my status, but what's my destiny? What am I going to be doing? <laughs> what, what, what's going on? And so we're going to explore some of that tonight, and I think it's going to nicely tie together so much of what we've done these, these first seven weeks. So just kind of as, as an overview, we, we spent quite a bit of time, and we've returned to these three great rebellions. The first one, Genesis 3, and as we think about it, what, what came as a result of that particular, and it was a, both a divine rebellion, the original uh, rebel, Satan, and our first parents, and out of that first rebellion, death entered as a factor into human existence, number one. And number two, separation from God, exclusion from God. And we're, um, in, in, in that particular situation, Satan becomes what the rest of Scripture calls him the Lord of the dead. He's the Lord of the dead because everyone goes to where he is. Everyone dies now. So in that sense, he kind of owns your, your location where you're going. We also get introduced to this idea of sacred space. And humanity, now that we're in rebellion, we're no longer fit for sacred space. And so we we don't have access to the very presence of God. We're no longer fit for that. And God's original plan, which was to take his divine family and his human family and have a blended family, all living together in God's sacred space, it's frustrated it's, it doesn't happen at that moment. We looked at the second rebellion, Genesis 6, where there's a certain group of God's divine counsel, the sons of God, or the watchers, as they're called in some places in Scripture. Um, they, they transgress, leave their proper domain, which is God's space, and transgress that. And then through women, they produce their own offspring, their own imagers, if you will. And these imagers later are going to become lethal threats to God's people. Um, And then um, after death, this is the explanation for the demons that we see in the New Testament, these disembodied giant clan, uh, quasi-human divine beings. And then secondly, we see that these sons of God during this Genesis 6 event, or the Watchers, they impart knowledge to humanity that helps them further corrupt themselves. It's not that humanity didn't know how to sin. (laughs) It's just sort of like, hey, let me help you do it faster. You like that self-destruction thing? Let me help you do it even quicker. So humanity is plummeting even further and further. And then thirdly, we looked at the events surrounding the Babel incident, Genesis chapter 11, but also the commentary from Deuteronomy 32 on that event, which tells us that God, in, a, in an act of judgment, punishes all humanity by divorcing himself from humanity. Um, and he assigns to them a different group of the sons of God, another, another group assigns them to them, and this is as a, as a punishment. And of course, we find out, we don't know when, but later, but that group of the divine council, the sons of God, they also rebelled at some point because Psalm 83 tells us about God standing in the council and judging them because rather than stewarding these people well, um, he still wanted them to be taken care of. Rather than taking care of them justly, they exploited them. They, uh, they didn't look out for the, <clears throat> the needy, they were unjust. And so they just further degraded humanity even there. They even attempted to solicit worship from their peoples, which they were not supposed to do. And not only from them, but later from Israel, from Yahweh's people, soliciting worship from them as well. And then this is the explanation for something that we called cosmic geography. This idea that there are hostile spiritual powers who were given authority over different people groups. And these are the ones that, uh, in the New Testament, they get spoken of as principalities, powers, uh, powers of the air, that sort of language. But that's what it's hearkening back to. It's referring back to that. And despite all of this rebellion, God is intent on having his original plan work. God is absolutely, he's not gonna scrap it. If he scrapped and said, I'm gonna do plan B, that means he's not omniscient, right? Because if he didn't, ah, forget that was a mistake. Well, omniscient gods don't make mistakes. So he's sticking with the original plan. There is no plan B. And so God is absolutely determined to establish not just Eden like we saw it on pages 1 and 2, as this small piece of land, a global Eden. That was his original plan. Remember, he told Adam and Eve, I want you to get busy making the rest of the world like it is in my space. So he, he's insisting, I'm going to get my plan, which is to be with my human family and my supernatural family in a global Eden. That is the goal. Um, and so when he speaks of his rule, that's, that's what should come to your mind. Even so much this um, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God, right? That's, that's sort of shorthand New Testament. A language for saying this is Jesus' message. Remember, he says, The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is, you know. When you hear kingdom of God, what you should not think of is somewhere up there. When you hear kingdom of God, you should think of God coming down here. You should think Genesis 1 and 2. You should think God making his dwelling here with humanity. That's what is in my, that's Jesus not coming up with some brand new thing. <laughs> He's just referring back to God's original intent. He will make his dwelling with us, even though we keep blowing it and messing it up. So when, when you think about your own future destiny, or maybe the destiny of, of loved ones, <clears throat> their status and destiny, we're given a framework for how to think about it. We're given a framework to have, to have something of an inkling as to what it's going to be. That framework is God's divine counsel. That's why we've spent so much time on this, because it is to inform us of what God has in store, what he has planned. The divine counsel, if you remember, it's made up of these ones who have the status of sons of of God and who have remained loyal to Yahweh, and we discover through these different incidents in the Old Testament that there's hierarchy in this divine council, there's order, there's structure, and God uses the divine council to make decisions and to take actions in whatever location that might be. There's, there's a divine bureaucracy. You could think of it that way. And as we said earlier, does God need that? Is he, is he, is he short on ideas? No, he doesn't need it. He likes it, and so we saw this idea that God likes to partner with his creatures. And you guys, that that tells you something about the character of God. The character of God is he, he's he's a being who likes to partner. He wants your input. Ever thought about that? Not because he needs it, because he is the character of God is one who likes to partner with his creation. So again, why is this so important for us to know? Because it's a template for how you, as a believer, will spend your eternity. Both your status, where you're going to be, kind of on the hierarchy thing, and what are you going to be doing, your destiny. So let's get into it. What does the Bible teach us about what our eternal destiny will be like? Now, it's important, we'll look at a couple different things. Number one, it's important to see, um, language can be really helpful. And I want us to look at a couple, some, some, some language that's used in the Old Testament, and it sets up a template. And then it's carried over to the New Testament, and the template's there, but it's applied differently. And, 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 it, and it's to inform us about ourselves and God's plan for us. Let me give you one. And this is, I think, in your bulletin. I've provided some uh, vocabulary in there. Um, holy ones. Do you remember that phrase? Take a look at, let me go to... Um, Daniel chapter 4, verse 13. Daniel chapter 4, verse 13. And if you remember, we we looked at this before. This was giving us a window into how God operates inviting input from his divine counsel. And Daniel says this. He has a vision uh, as he's laying in bed. He says, behold, a watcher, a holy one. And then he talks a little bit about what he sees. And we see later... Uh, a, a sentence is handed down against the king. he 's going to be judged. and this we're told this this sentence, this judgment, is by the decree of the watchers. the decision by the word of the holy ones. okay? So this phrase, holy now we 're told later the decision's also by God. <laughs> so he approved it. <laughs> he 's not just saying, oh, you know you go do whatever you want he's he's approving this idea. So the watchers, the, the Hebrew word is, is Kedoshim, holy one, okay? <clears throat> um, and we see this numerous different places, uh, Zechariah 14, if you're interested looking at that one, we won't go through all of them, where the, the Kedoshim, the holy ones, are these divine beings. They're members of the divine council, okay? Kedoshim isn't always used that way. Sometimes it's it's used to refer to people. Um, The singular one, it's used to refer to God. God is the Holy One of Israel. But but this group thing is, is like in Daniel especially, the Kedoshim, the Holy Ones, it's the divine counsel. So your mind's supposed to go to them when you hear that word. Now, we've talked a little bit about different translations of the Bible, the, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. At some point, when Greek becomes the lingua franca after Alexander the great and many people aren't reading Jews aren't reading Hebrew they translate the Hebrew bible into what's called the septuagint the the greek version of the old testament when they do that they take the word kedoshim and they use just the greek equivalent hagioi okay so a jew when they hear kedoshim holy ones they're if they're probably no Greek. They're also thinking hagioi. Okay, So they're the same kind of idea. What's so interesting here is in the New Testament, this word, but the Greek version, hagioi, it's used all over the place. It's never used of supernatural beings. It is only used of believers. Let me show you as an example. Paul uses it all the time. To all those who are loved by God and called to be hagioi. This is one of our problems with many of our English translations. Saint comes from sanctus. If you grew up Catholic, you probably heard that word, sanctus. It's a Latin word. Um, And we've just sort of taken a Latin word from the old Latin Vulgate, and we use it in English, saint. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Anytime you read your Bible, and you come across this word saint or saints, and it's littered in the letters of Paul and others, in your mind, don't say saint. Say holy one, holy ones, because your mind is supposed to go back to God's divine counsel. So think about that. The authors are, are um, leaving little breadcrumbs. How are you to think of yourself, church? Well, you're, you're the holy ones. Okay, so that's, that's one idea of how, or one piece of how this sort of seeps into the New Testament, and we need to have eyes to see it. So we see what what are these... Authors communicating to us about our status. Let me give you one other one. And this one's even clearer. The phrase, sons of God. Okay? <clears throat> um, wh- where are the sons of God in the Old Testament? We've gone over a few. I mean, they're always the divine counsel. That's the only time we see them. Um, do you remember the book of Job? We, went, we read Job, I think it was 38, where he says to Job, Hey, where were you when I created the earth? When the sons of God sang for joy... Okay, that's his divine counsel. Um, we, we come across the sons of God in uh, Deuteronomy 32. Remember where God says, I'm going I'm to judge the nations and I'm going to break them up according to the number of the sons of God. Sons of God in the Old Testament never refers to people. Ever, ever, ever. It always refers to divine council members. Um, let me show you kind of a little picture. This is kind of a helpful... This is, this is from Heiser. Um, he came up with this image here. Can you kind of see that? He, he gives this image as a way to think about hierarchy in the divine council. Okay? You have Yahweh, the Godhead, at the top. <clears throat> Below that are sons of God. Okay? It's a title of, of hierarchy. They're higher up. Below that or the malak, or the malakim, or the angelos in Greek, whatever it is, messengers. And again, it doesn't tell you what a thing is, it tells you what a thing does. It's, it's sort of a job title, but it's describing hierarchy, okay? So as we think about this, do you remember the psalm that I quoted earlier? Oh God, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, yeah. So we, we kind of know where we are. At this point, on this, so the title of um, Son of God, it's a status title, and the reason it's used is because in the ancient royal courts, the ones who got the top jobs—guess who they were? They were the sons of the king, right? They would get the very best job. So this is this is what this is telegraphing to you. Okay, these these are sort of the highest level. Is this phrase "son"? Of God. When you hear, you should think, oh man, that's a lofty position. That's like the highest possible position under God Himself. It's an extreme high position. Now, this is when you hear Son of God, oftentimes you think, so are they all men? No. <laughs> um, supernatural beings are not binary like we are, okay? It's a phrase to make you think of, because again, in the ancient world, a, a status, a Son of God had a status. Okay, these are. Non binary beings, supernatural beings. You're not supposed to think of sex. You're not supposed to think of gender. You're supposed to think of um, status, if that makes sense. Okay? Um, Now, how does son of God, sons of God, plural, get taken over into the New Testament? Guess who it never, ever, ever, ever refers to? Supernatural beings never gets referred to them. Who does it get referred to? Well, listen to how Jesus used it. Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called... What's the phrase? They're going to be sons of God. And again, you don't go, oh, so it's only men? Is Jesus only... No, 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 you're missing the point. (laughs) God's saying, the status of my followers is gonna be like a son of God, like one of the sons of God. We read, um, Luke, this one's interesting, he's borrowing directly from Deuteronomy 32. But love your enemies and do good, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the most high. Again, that comes from, um, excuse me, uh, Psalm 82. I, this is the judgment of the sons of God who have gone awry. They've corrupted their nations and stuff. And this is what we hear. I said you are God's sons of the Most High. I mean, that, that's the highest level of authority that you can possibly have. And, he, of course, he hands down judgment. Nevertheless, you're going to die like a, like a mere mortal, like a mere man. But Jesus is borrowing from Psalm 82, the judgment passage, being a son of the Most High high God. Um, listen, to, go to, uh, listen to how the Apostle John also takes this language from the Old Testament, the sons of God, and uses it for us, for our status, talking about it. But all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, you remember the other day we talked about the name theology kind of going back to that, he gave the right to become children of God. You know where your status is. You're a little lower than the angel, than the angels. And yet there's, now there's all this talk of, well, wait a minute. What's this? I I, I might be able to be in a different status, one of the sons of God, uh, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of will of man, but of God. This is a supernatural transformation is what he is saying. We see this too. <clears throat> see what this is also John, but this is not his gospel, this is one of his letters. First uh, John verses one through three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called, and here's, here's the language, children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Think about that. You have that status. Now, and what we will be, oh, so here's kind of an already not yet thing. This is, this is a phrase that biblical theologians use a lot. We're like, I'm saved, but I'm being saved. It's already, but it's not yet. <laughs> okay? Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when it does appear, we shall be like God. Jesus, we're going to be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is. We're going to be as much like Jesus as possible. We're not going to be God. We began to exist. We're going to be as much like Jesus as is possible. That's the level of uh, glory, you could put it that way, that God has in mind for you and every other human creature. Um, according to Paul, let's look at how Paul employs it as well, because he does this frequently. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are, here's the phrase, they're sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, and this is the key thing that Paul latches on The spirit of adoption as sons, you're being brought into that level of status, and it's like an adoption, but you are going to be brought into that level of status. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are here. He's coming back to it again because he wants to pound it into the reader. We are children of God. And then, he, and then he makes some therefore comments. If that's true, wh- what does that mean? What are the implications of that? And he says, if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and heirs with Christ. Heirs of God and heirs with Christ. And those prepositions are important, and we'll get to why that is. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You're going to be as much like Jesus as is possible. <laughs> to be glorified with him. There's also another, there's a passage that I just love. It's one of my favorite in the, uh, in the New Testament. Let's see if I can get to it here. Um, Romans chapter 8. Is that what I mean? Oh, it was just right below. There we go. Listen, listen to how, how, how Paul puts this here. He says, um, I consider that the sufferings of my present time, they're not worth comparing to, and here's this word again, the glory. That means to be like Jesus. The glory that is going to be revealed to us. Now listen to this phrase. For the creation, he's talking about just like the cosmos, everything. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of, of the sons of God. That means for you to come into your glory and take that position of one of the sons of God to image God at that level in this earth post-resurrection. He says the whole earth is groaning for who you are to be revealed, for the sons of God to be sort of like introduced, displayed. Hebrews 2 uses this language. where. Uh, He says, um, "I, I am not embarrassed to introduce my brothers in the council. One day, Jesus will introduce you to the Father and the Father to you in the midst of the divine council. You're an adopted member. You're stepping into that divine council, one of the sons of God, as it were, that status think of the dignity. That's why a person would marvel and say, God, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've made us a little lower than the angels, right? Or as the author of Hebrews says, speaking of Jesus, you made Jesus a little lower than the angels for a while, (laughs) for a while. That's going to change here at some point. Let me go to uh, Galatians chapter... Galatians chapter 3, we read this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all, see, all the biblical authors, I mean, they keep returning to this. And when you see the language in you your mind, it needs to be hooking back into divine counsel stuff. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you uh, were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, all those old divisions that separated. And remember, those divisions come from Genesis 11, Deuteronomy 32. All those divisions, they're, they're, they're done with. God's, God's moving back to one people. <clears throat> there is neither slave nor free. There is male nor neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, you belong to him, then you are Abraham's offspring. And here's the key word again. Heirs, remember, we, heirs of God, heirs with Christ. So then, the question often comes in mind: heirs of what? What do we? I mean, when you're an heir, <laughs> you you receive something at some point. What is it that we're going to receive as adopted sons of God into the divine council? Let me go to. Um, these are some words from Jesus, Luke twenty-two thirty. 30. Now, this phrase should take your mind to somewhere that we've looked at in Daniel. He says, um, he starts a little earlier, uh, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, that's plural, sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, what your mind should go to is Daniel 7. When the the Ancient of Days takes, it says says there were many thrones, and the Ancient of Days takes his place, the Son of Man comes to him, remember on the cloud, he's the cloud rider. Well, there's all of these thrones, what is that? This is the divine council. Jesus is referring to divine council language here when he says, you're going to be sitting on thrones with me. That's where their mind would have gone is back to Daniel chapter 7. And so this gets to what it is that... So what is our um, our destiny? What is it that we're becoming heirs of? Let me kind of build it for you like this. Do you guys remember the Old Testament story? It's in the book of Numbers. There's this guy named Balaam. Um, Balaam is the one who he's riding on his donkey and... Hits him like three times. The angel of the Lord is standing there because he's gonna he's gonna strike him dead. the The king of of Moab contracts Balaam to prophesy negative things against Israel as they're coming through the desert because they're worried. Man, they're gonna you know you know they've beaten all these other nations. They're gonna fight us too. And so I'm, I need to go hire a seer, a mystic, who who will bring a a a statement of judgment and condemnation on the Israelites. And Yahweh basically doesn't, I mean, Balaam's like in touch with all these other gods, okay? And Yahweh doesn't let him do it. Every time he opens his mouth, only positive and blessing comes out, right? And he's like frustrated. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm trying. I can't do it. And so there's, this is one of those statements. So this is a Yahweh-inspired statement coming out of the false prophet Balaam for Israel. Listen to these words. He talks about uh, earlier, This is the knowledge of the Most High, we know who that is, that's Yahweh, meaning this is is what God's telling me. And he says this, he says, I see him, and you might wonder who that is, but not now. I behold him, but he's not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So he's saying, that's going to happen, but it's not anytime soon, it's in the future, I can't totally make it out but I see him, but he's afar off. <laughs> and I know he's there, but I can't... It's, it's not now, but a star. Star is divine, supernatural being language. If you remember, we've talked about that a lot. And a scepter shall rise out of it. A scepter is what you use to rule, right? So this idea that the false prophet Balaam gives again and again, it gets picked up in Israel's history constantly. They say things like this. The Lord shall send forth from Zion... Your mighty scepter, that's that scepter that God spoke through Balaam. Or we read uh, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, that's the particular tribe, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Or uh, and this is kind of where we get way forward into the book of Revelation. The very end, Jesus hooks into all of that language going all the way back to the book of Numbers and Psalm 110, and he says this, "Um, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, that's Messianic language, like a branch or root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Bright morning star is Messianic language from the Old Testament that was all about who's ruling. Okay, you with me there? The bright morning star, it's messianic language about who is ruling. Now, look at how this gets used, though, here. Okay, this is the beginning of Revelation, same book, Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. He says, Hold fast, he's writing to the churches, hold fast um, what you have until I come, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give. This is a weird statement. Authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an, a, a rod of iron. Now, this is all messianic language, but he's now applying it to people. Um, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Wait, what? I thought he said he's the morning star. And he says, I will give him the morning start. Now, this phrase, you might immediately go, okay, ruling over the nations. I mean there's going to be all these people that we're going to be like ruling over? No, no. This is a title. Think about it this way. Who's ru- who has been ruling the nations? The rebellious sons of God, right? That's their status, their role. They're over the nations, highest level, they're sons of God. You're going to displace them. You're going to displace those authorities and powers and uh, principalities, powers of the air, all these different languages, right? You created the Lord and the angels. You've been adopted into the divine council, and you're going to displace all of these dark powers and intelligent, dark beings that are there. Um, let me go to one other place here, and I think we're good. On, oh, good, I've got a little bit of time. There's something that I want to get to here. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.1. This is an obscure verse. Um, if, if you don't have the, the whole displacement of these beings in mind, you're going to read this and be like, Paul, what are you talking about? I have no idea. So Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's criticizing them because they're having fights within the church community, and they take it to the local uh, pagan secular magistrate. And he's like, guys, how does that look? You're the body of Christ, you're supposed to have unity, and when you don't, you take it to those who aren't in the family yet. What does that show them about the unity? You you with me on that, Like, kind of what his point is? Look at the statement that he makes. He said, you know, why do you do this? when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to, uh, to, dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the, what words should you be thinking, the holy ones? Or do you not know that the holy ones, that's you, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are, are you incompetent to try a trivial case? Do you not know that we will judge angels. I remember when I first read that, I was like, no, I do not know that. Why is that there? Whoever said we're judging angels? I never saw that anywhere. Well, it's what's littered throughout the text. Humanity, created the Lord and angels, is going to displace the supernatural beings which are uh, in rebellion against the Most High God. And after the great day of the Lord... When we are resurrected with bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about those bodies. He says, you know, think about the body that goes into the ground, it's mortal, it's perishable, and it's incorruptible. But he says, one day, to borrow some language from the book of Daniel 12, many will rise out of the dust of the earth. And Paul says they will rise immortal, (laughs) imperishable, incorruptible. And then he goes on to say, it's going to be your body, but it's different. And he says, all we know is it's going to be like Jesus's. It's going to be like Jesus'. And Jesus' body seemed to have different properties than other bodies. It seemed to be unique. And that's what we're told. We will rule over, this is what we're told, we will rule over a new global Eden, which God will deliver to us as like kings and queens in this new world. I, I love the passage, which I think I have it in here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, um, <clears throat> and yet the mature, uh, sorry, yet among the mature we do, not, we do not impart wisdom, although it is, we do, excuse me, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, okay? He's, you know who he's got in mind there, the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. They're done, they're toast. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. He had planned on this all along. This is not plan B. You were planned to be in this role. None of the rulers of this age, again, going to that, understood it. They didn't get it. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. I love this phrase here. But as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what it is that God has prepared for those who love him. <laughs> so even though we're talking about it and we're saying this is what's going to happen, don't think you have a clue. <laughs> it's going to be so much better. so much pre- Anything you can even think of it is, it's going to be a poor shadow, a poor photocopy at best. God's saying, it's it's more wonderful than talk about it and think about it and look at it, and then multiply that by a million. That's what I have in store for you. That's how much I love you. That's how much I want you in my family. And I will do whatever it takes for you to be there, to have you. <clears throat> Let me do one last passage. Um, as, I, as I mentioned to you, um, these three rebellions, the Jewish mind was that the Messiah has to deal with all three of them, right? He has to deal with the effects of all three of these rebellions. He has to repair, he has to redeem, he has to reconcile, whatever you would say. What went wrong, not just with number one, but with number one, number two, and number three. One of the Weirdest Bible passages in the New Testament, I think, um, is First Peter 318. <clears throat> Let me read this. And if you you might have read this before, I just it it feels like Paul is just grabbing or Peter just grabbing a bunch of stuff, like putting in a blender and just turning it on. And it's like, here's my theology. Because it's just all this stuff that's so weird. And if you don't have this kind of what Heiser calls the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. This is just gibberish. It's just gibberish, okay? So let's read through it. Here's what I want you to think about. Can you identify where Peter puts his finger on Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 11? At least the consequences of what came out of those, okay? Remember Genesis 3, what's the consequence? Death is the main one, separation of God. Um, Genesis uh, um, 6, we've we've got, this is the... uh, uh, spirits that left their proper abode, right? And all the stuff that came out of that. Genesis 11, or Deuteronomy 32, we have the division of the nations, right? Okay. Now read this with me. See if you can, if, if, if you can identify where Peter has those in mind. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to The death of the flesh, what does that make you think of? The fall, Genesis 3. That's a consequence of the fall, the death of the flesh. Um, But made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison who didn't obey during the days of Noah. What is that? (laughs) That's the flood. That's Genesis 6, right? Because after these watchers sinned, he said he sent them to the abyss in chains of gloomy darkness, as Peter says other places. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while in the ark, as the ark was being prepared, and he just goes into all this you know, detail of that. He, he wants you to know when he's talking about. There's only one time where angels who sinned, during and, it, and it's connected to the flood. He wants you to think of Genesis 6. While well, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. And then he says, <clears throat> actually, let's come back to that. Let's jump down to verse... 22. He said, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers? What's he thinking of? He's thinking of Babel, the Genesis 11, Deuteronomy 32, right? Authorities, principalities, powers. He's referenced all three of the rebellions, or at least the consequences of those rebellions. Now, what is it that that gets rid of those, that fixes them? It's in orange there through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he says something really, really, I think it's cool, and I bring it up for for this reason. Um, Not this weekend, but next weekend is Easter, and we're going to do Easter baptisms, right? Do you guys love watching baptisms? I absolutely love them. Listen to what Peter says about baptisms, and I wonder if you'll think differently next week when you see these baptisms taking place. So he says, what is it that f- addresses these things, these three rebellions? Resurrection of Jesus. And then he says, your baptism is doing something when you're baptized. It's a picture of something. Listen to what he says. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, he's talking about the flood and all that sort of thing, now saves you, not at, not at, and then he says, not the act of it, it's not the removal of the dirt from the body, the, the, the act isn't saving you, it's what it's pointing to but as an appeal to God for a good conscience or the pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus. Here's here's what I believe Paul is saying here. When you get baptized, you're reenacting the act that took away all of the powers of evil. Think about it. When you go under the water, you're going under, down, and you come right back up, right? Right? What is that symbolizing? What are you reenacting? You're reenacting the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You're playing it out. And see, this whole point where it says in here, he went and, uh, how did he put it here? Um, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It's the idea that his death, he, he, he joined the dead, but he said, I'm not staying here. You're stuck. I'm not. And he leaves, right? Right? When a person gets baptized, it's an act of spiritual warfare in the sense of the person is saying, um, Yeah, I'm, I'm going to die, but I'm not staying there. It's a, it's a statement to the powers of darkness that we are no longer on their side. It's a statement to the powers of darkness that they no longer can control us because we have joined ourselves to Christ. It's a statement, it's a reminder to them we don't share their destiny. Do you realize that? Because we're reenacting the thing that is putting them there. (laughs) We're we're reminding ourselves of our destiny. We're reminding the dark spiritual forces of their destiny. It's one more person they've lost. (laughs) As as their kingdom shrinks, God's kingdom grows. That's what's happening. So this next week, as, as you're here, as you watch baptisms, I hope that it it sort of takes on a whole new layer for you. And then you go, that's what's happening right there. It's a, remi- it's a proclamation. You might even say, baptism is, is a loyalty oath. It's, it's our loyalty oath. And it, it corresponds to the act of Christ dying and rising, which is what saves us. That is. That's what saves us. And we're reminding ourselves of that. And what we have, let me go to one, one last verse, and then we're going to take communion. First Peter chapter one. Sorry, it's uh, Second Peter. <clears throat> well, that's where I was at. Um, I can't think of it. Uh, it's First Peter or 2 Peter. Peter makes an interesting comment. He says, We will be partakers in the divine nature. And that's always been one of these verses that people are kind of, What in the world does that mean? Is that, is that kind of weird? You know, like, where are you going to go with your theology and that sort of thing? Um, the, the Eastern Orthodox Christians call it theosis, which means to become God ish. Not, not God, I mean, not God, to be like him, to have his own, C.S. Lewis talks about it, the idea that, that I get in, uh, he calls it the good infection. I'm infected by God's own eternal nature, that's what allows me to live that way. In the song that we're going to sing, just a second, we, we sang it at the beginning, I loved the words because he, he says, God's blood flows through my veins. It's one more great way to try to get at, it. what does that mean? What is it? Well, it's, the, it's not my own life anymore. It's a foreign life that has infected me, that's infused new life, eternal life to me, as Jesus talked about it. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion, right? We are saying it's only because of this that God addressed all three, Genesis 1, Genesis, or Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 11. He addressed them all in the resurrection. And all of the, the negative outcomes of those things will become untrue, as C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia. Everything bad will become untrue, yes, because of what Jesus has done in the death, burial, and resurrection. And that's where we stake our hope, amen? So during the song, I'll invite you to go to one of the tables, grab the elements, in your own time, take them, and then let's stand and sing this song together. Nothing more powerful that we could say tonight than that, Last statement. I am a child of God. You'll never say anything more powerful the rest of your life. Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through King Jesus to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thank you for this whole semester being here and pressing in and and, uh, not falling asleep too often. So I love you guys so much and I'll see you uh, good Friday and Easter.